Welcome to the Life Support Podcast, where we share stories about being a doctor to build community and to heal each other, even when what ails us is incurable. My name is Paul Kim, and I just finished my first year of medical school. Already I have witnessed how medical school and medical practice have just as much potential to drain our spirits as to offer fulfillment and meaning. I hope my conversation with Dr. Marianne today will help support you in living well your current phase of becoming a physician. Thank you, Marianne, for taking the time to speak with me today. Can you tell me a bit about your story of how you became a physician and then what you've done after? I didn't begin university with any intention of being a physician. I went to University of Michigan and was in an era in the early 70s where one could create one's own major and graduate with a bachelor in general studies. So I was really interested in comparative literature and psychology, but realized it was gonna be hard to make a living with. And during that time, I became interested in working as a volunteer at, they had these free clinics in Ann Arbor, Michigan at the time. And so I worked at a women's alternative free clinic and decided to take a year off after my third year at university to figure out what I was doing with my life. During that year, decided I wanted to do something in healthcare and so we turned to school and in my last year of university, started doing all the pre-med courses and then went to medical school and initially had intended to be a family doc, but I really fell in love with psychiatry during my clinical rotations. And so changed to psychiatry. Another thing that sort of formed my work, at least initially, was that I was uh, supported by the public health service to go through medical school. So they paid for my tuition and I had a stipend for three years from the public health service. In return, I offered three years of service. Strangely enough, uh, there was a psychiatric shortage area right outside of Boston in Somerville, Massachusetts. In the early 80s was quite a relatively low income community and with a very high rate of mental illness and alcohol abuse. So they were short on psychiatrists. So I went and did my public health service right like a mile from the Massachusetts General Hospital. I worked there for three years and then moved to Toronto for where I worked all of my career as as a psychiatrist. I was curious. So you said you fell in love with psychiatry on when you were on your rotation. What what about it made you fall in love with it? I think I'm very interested in, and always have been in people's stories. I think psychiatry really immerses one in people's stories and in generational stories as well. I just felt an affinity for the work, I think. It just felt very comfortable there. I think it's interesting how one chooses one's specialty. When I grew up, I spent a lot of time with children and my parents always encouraged me to become a child psychologist. And I was like, there's no way I'm doing that. Um, And then of course I ended up being a child psychiatrist many years later, but you sort of, you know, I was trying to kind of defy how people saw me and the way people assumed that's what I would do. It's like, no, I'm going to be a family doctor. So I finally worked my way back to being something akin to a child psychologist. I was also wondering, how did your initial undergraduate interest in comparative literature, how do you think that may have dovetailed with your interest in psychiatry? Well, I think it dovetailed quite well, because again, literature is full of stories. And so again, drawn to hearing about people's lives and how people thought about things or how people's experiences were different. Although I was really interested in comparative literature, 
it was a time of political activism at University of Michigan. There were students for democratic society. And so I also took a lot of courses in the psychology department in the psychology and dynamics of human racism. And after taking it, after taking the course once, I was also a section teacher once. It was a very sort of unusual time where there was probably less emphasis on expertise and and being an authority in the subject before you were sort of able to teach it. Could you tell me a little bit about what it was like practicing as a child psychiatrist? I initially started out as always interested in being a community psychiatrist. And I did my public health service work as a community psychiatrist in a free clinic in Somerville, Massachusetts, where it was just in three old houses. And and I'm sort of giving this background because it tells a bit about what my interest has been all along. And it was a a clinic that really involved the patients in their own treatment. So I was interviewed by patients who were people at the day treatment program where I was going to be the medical director, severe chronic mental illness. And as part of my interview, they asked me to help them make lunch for their daily lunch and sit with them and have lunch and chat with all the patients. It was sort of unusual because there I am at a job interview, chopping celery and, and eating lunch with people, but it was lovely. But it reflected this idea that we needed to meet with people on more of a shared level and a a sort of human level, as well as having somebody being a person with expertise, but I also was just a person. We went on camping trips or trips with patients. We, you know, we did a lot of different things that would probably not be happening today. In fact, I think the clinic doesn't operate the same way at all, but we were very involved in the community and people in the community knew us. When I moved to Toronto, I I assumed that's what I would continue doing, but when I moved, I was pregnant and I didn't look for a job right away because I thought, well, I'll have, have this child and then go back to work, but I really loved being at home. So I took a seven year break, had two kids, two sons, and realized that my parents were right, that I really just loved being with kids. And I was spending a lot of time with children and loving it and decided to look for work with children. So my first job was as a psychiatrist at the Toronto District School Board. So they had a whole, back in the day, they had a whole department of psychiatry. And when I joined, it had shrunk quite a bit, but there was still three of us. And our job was we went to schools all over the school district, doing consultations, doing classroom observations of children, meeting with families in the school, sometimes meeting families in their homes if the child was too anxious to come to school. And it was, again, it was was a little bit of community child psychiatry because many of the people that we saw were people who were intimidated by the prospect of going to a mental health clinic in a hospital, but they had a a long relationship with their neighborhood school. Maybe the parents even gone there and trusted the staff there to say it was okay to meet with a psychiatrist. And I also loved having contact with teachers. I always had great admiration for teachers and always imagined that as another career I would have, would have enjoyed. So I did that for many years and, and did that. And it also dovetailed with having young children because I was off in the summer times and I was usually home when they got out of school. So I sort of slid through the back door into child psychiatry. I had done a, a few child psychiatry rotations, but I hadn't done a fellowship at that point. So when the handwriting was on the wall, that we weren't, there wasn't going to be a, a vibrant department of psychiatry in the school board anymore. It was just too, didn't fit in the budget. I went and did a child fellowship at the University of Toronto and then started working at a children's mental health center, two children's mental health centers affiliated with University of Toronto. And I think what was memorable and what was lovely about my beginning was that I was 
working in a very multidisciplinary setting, the school system. And so all my colleagues, all my contacts with people were, not all of them, but many of them were with social workers and teachers and school administrators. And because I visited certain schools over and over again, I developed relationships with people at the schools. So it was still that sense of being part of a community rather than in a in an isolated medical setting. So much of the parts of the story you just told really stand out to me. And I think, as you just said, the aspect that this seems like community is this thing that continues to be a part of your story. And I just want to backtrack a little bit to when you said you were interviewing for the community clinic. Um, I was just so struck that, you know, they would have the really, in my opinion, foresight of saying, well, we have to see how this person actually interacts with the patients that are going to be here. But you like, you learn so much about people when you just get to be with them through the, all the little steps of the day. I think it's a great model, actually. And I think it's, you know, it might not be the most efficient, but in terms of people trusting you. And I mean, actually the patients were, it was an era where everybody was called a client. The clients were, you know, we were there to serve them. And, and so it, it was a different way of seeing the relationship. And it also it helped that the clinic was in three old houses. So the day treatment program where I was the director, you know, they had repurposed a bedroom on the second floor was my office and everything was, you know, there's a big, on the second floor, there was a big living room that became the group meeting. And we used to, we used to prescribe medications in a group setting. So it'd be a medication group once a week where the people in the day treatment program would meet with me and we'd go around the room and people would talk about how they were doing on the medications. I mean, that seems crazy because of, HIPAA and, but it was lovely. And like people would say, oh yeah, I had that side effect or, you know, I've noticed this about Eugene. And, and then we, in the group, we'd write all the prescriptions. And I really walked into this model. There was a psychiatrist, Ken Minkoff and, and Bob Stern, who are the community psychiatrists who really brought this kind of more egalitarian approach to this clinic. And I just joined into it and meshed with what was already there, but it was a really eye-opening experience for me. And I also loved how really empowering in a system that normally looks at people with chronic mental illness of being, you know, we can't trust their judgment or we're constantly looking for ways to like take away their capacity to make decisions. Right. Now just saying, no, we're going to give you a legitimate say in who is going to treat you. That is so astounding. Yeah. And they had a council, they had their own patient council and staff would sit in on it, but we would, and they would make proposals to us and we would discuss them and have shared meetings. And it really, I mean, I think it, it compels one to operate from a strengths-based perspective. And if there was a team meeting to talk about a patient's treatment, we would invite the patient in to give their input and what did they think was working. And of course it would depend because obviously if somebody wasn't able to do it because they were having an acute psychotic episode, I mean, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't Nirvana, but, but it was, it worked really well. Could you clarify for me what uh, being a community psychiatrist means? So what it really means is, I think, being a psychiatrist whose work is focused on probably supporting people to live in the community. And it may have been in response to deinstitutionalization in the 60s. It was a specialty that was looking at innovative ways of supporting people to be in the community. So it meant, you know, doing a lot of house calls and visiting people at home and, you know, having these different teams or sometimes we get a call from like the local donut shop and they'd say, you know, doc, so-and-so is down here and he seems off his medication. Can you come down and talk to him? So we would go down and talk to the person at the donut shop. And so it means like you're really 
part of the community. And so we would work with other people in the community to support the people who were facing a severe mental illness. And of course, other parts of the clinic, that was just my part, but there was a child, one of the houses was a children's clinic, and there was a regular outpatient clinic for people with less severe issues. But I think it was really to, to use the community resources to support people to stay in the community and to be integrated into the community. To me, that sounds amazing. I would sign up for that job in a heartbeat. But also, do you know of anyone these days that does something like that? No, partly the model was nobody ever paid anything to come. And I'm not really, I'm a little bit weak on how that worked financially. But as things in healthcare in the United States changed, people had to then pay or I mean, a lot of these patients had Medicaid or Medicare, but it became less free flowing and open. And I haven't worked in the States as a psychiatrist since 1985. So I don't really know. I know in Canada, we have ACT teams, which are teams that solely support people in the community. And it's a nurse and a psychiatrist who go and visit people with chronic severe mental illness in their homes and give them you know, medication and work with a social worker about housing. And the other part of this clinic was that people had case managers who helped them with all kinds of aspects of their life. And there was a drop-in center in the basement of a church, for instance, where people could go and drink coffee all day and chat and just get informal support. So I don't know how that works, but it's really because I haven't been, I'm sure there are people doing this sort of work. I'm just haven't worked in the States for decades. So I don't, I don't know. So we covered your undergraduate to entering medicine, to doing the community health stuff, and then working in the, the schools. And one thing you mentioned about working in schools and child psychiatry is that you were part of a interdisciplinary team. What did you feel was your role as a physician amongst all these other professionals? I had maybe a particular lens in which th- that might be helpful in terms of the team's understanding. So, and a lot of the teams I was on weren't weren't physician-led. I saw myself as having probably a particular concern about risk assessment, um, of whether a child was at risk of hurting themselves or risk of being abused. And I had like a particular responsibility to really be always thinking about that and if they were safe where they were. But my role was really as just one of the team members. So I, you know, I was the only person who prescribed medication. So I would, you know, consult about medication, but I also, psychiatrists, the whole system is so different in Canada because we have nationalized health insurance that there's, we're also, we do a lot of therapy. So in my work at the clinic, I was also doing individual and family therapy. And so were the social workers and the psychologists. So it was So I had an area of expertise and certainly diagnosing people and making suggestions about their treatment plan, but really just a team member. And also everywhere I worked, there were medical students and residents that I was teaching. That was a lot of fun. And there were always social work students because the two clinics I worked at were university affiliated clinics. So people were placed there for rotations. And obviously I had a role as a physician, but it wasn't necessarily as the team leader, but a person with a particular expertise and understanding medical issues that came up or the impact of a person who had multiple diagnoses. Part of the reason I ask is that in medical school, 
we're kind of beat over the head with this idea that, oh, as the physician, you're going to be like the leader of the medical team. And so you have to have these leadership qualities, quote unquote. So it just was surprising to me to hear physicians be like, oh yeah, you know, I wasn't the leader, but that was okay. I had my role and that was fine. Yes. And I suppose sometimes because, you know, it's sort of like the buck stops here, that would be a sort of implicit leadership role. You know, if somebody was doing something, I'd say, you know, this person's suicidal and we need to do this right now. You know, so it would come up at times. So I suppose informally there was leadership about clinical decisions, but the head of both clinics that I worked at were social workers. And so they were my direct line of supervision. (laughs) I mean, it's interesting. Of course, we had a department, psychiatric department head who I reported to as well, but my on the ground, the person who asked me to do certain things was a social worker. When I left, a, psych- a psychiatrist had taken over leadership, but when I was there, it was a social worker. And I was fine with that because that also meant they were the person responsible for financial decisions and negotiating with the landlord and, <laughs> and you know deciding about hiring and firing people, none of which I'm interested in. And I'm a terrible, I'd be a terrible administrator. So I was very grateful. So could you tell me a little bit about a defining or particularly significant experience you had as a child psychiatrist. You're talking to one particular person. So I I loved being a child psychiatrist. So clearly the stress wasn't unmanageable, but stressful is the first thing that comes to mind because towards the end of my career as a child psychiatrist, I think I found decision-making about high-risk kids when I felt like there wasn't enough systemic support for them was a tough spot to be in. And I found it got harder. And that just might've been as I was getting older, I was probably maybe less able to tolerate risk. I think also it's a joy. I mean, because every person you're seeing is a bit different. And every every time you see them, so especially as a child psychiatrist, you're often meeting with families or you might have a, a meeting with the parents without the child and the child knows about it and the child has input. So there's all those different combinations. And I also still, because of my work as a school psychiatrist, I would often go to their schools to meet with their teachers and see how we could work together to create a network of support for this student. If they weren't just going to see me once a week and then they'd be at school and we wouldn't have any communication. And I really enjoyed that. So So it was a joy. Why do you think that as you got older, you're less able to tolerate risk? Well, that's a question for a geriatrician. Um, (laughs) No, I think, yeah, I don't know if it's as I got older, I was less able to tolerate risk or if I felt like I couldn't count on the system to support kids enough. I tend to be, I tend to be a person who, I just want to be thoughtful about how I say this. I tend to be a person who has a hard time leaving work at work. And even now that I'm not working as a physician, I, I find it hard. And so I, I, mean, I remember being away, my family, and like waking up in the middle of the night, being really worried about somebody who I was seeing and, you know, waiting for daylight till it was a decent hour and I could call his mother and kind of check in and see how he was doing, even though I was on vacation. And so I've, I think partly that's just my personality. A lot of it's my personality, my family would, would tell you. I think... When you're younger, you're probably just, you know, you're, you're less aware of all the possibilities, maybe. Like when your kids are little and, you, you know, and your kids take on risks, when you took on risks like that when you were a kid and you didn't think anything of it, but watching your own kids do it, you're like, oh, I know what can happen, even though I did that. And I think the older you get, the more you see 
things can go wrong and unexpectedly they can go wrong. And so this possibilities of, but that also might be where my Velcro is, is that I tend to hold on to the things that unexpectedly didn't go well. And then I start to think, well, could that happen with this person too? So maybe that's part of it. You just have more life experience and I know things can change quickly and it's harder to leave it as I got older. Oh, it's been a work in progress. I, I got very involved in, I took a mindfulness-based stress reduction course somewhere along the line, and then I became a teacher of it, certified as a teacher. And so that was a tremendous help to me personally and in my work, not only sharing those skills with kids and with parents. I used to run a, a mindfulness-based stress reduction group for parents at the clinic where I worked, but it helped me let go of things and tolerate risk better. That's such an interesting phrase you use. Like that's your Velcro. I'd never heard that before, but it's such a great image. I'm trying to smooth it down and not have things <laughs> stick as much, but it's, 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 I got a lot of it. Now, can you tell me about how you made the transition from being a physician to being a chaplain? So it was multifactorial. So a long time ago, 1999, my dad was on hospice. And I've always been interested in reading about issues related to people at end of life or death and dying. And But when my dad came on hospice, very moved by, he had two physicians, an internist and a surgeon. My dad had liposarcoma and he had it for four years before he died and had several debulking operations. And I watched how when we would go to doctor's appointments, and I wasn't at every one, my brother was at every one, but I didn't live in Rochester at the time. But when I did go, his doctors were so careful about how they framed recommendations, honoring my dad. My dad kept thinking there was a solution to this. I mean, he knew there wasn't a cure, but he was not ready. I mean, he went through a lot of surgeries, even though we all wondered about, you know, is this really the best approach? And we sort of thought his doctors probably wondered that too, but they really listened to my dad and they really were respectful of how he wanted to continue. And so I was very moved by when his internist had a discussion with him about it might be time for hospice. My dad agreed, which was a surprise, but it was a very gentle conversation. And then the hospice nurse came and the hospice nurse, the very first visit sat next, sat in front of my dad, sort of knee to knee and said, asked him what he was afraid of. And my dad told me he was afraid of dying. And I guess we all sort of knew he was, but we hadn't really talked about it, much less asked my father, you know, and, and this nurse, like within five minutes of meeting my dad, had sort of asked him a question that got to the heart of the matter. And the hospice aide also developed a very close relationship with my dad. And the whole team, these two physicians, probably less the surgeon, because at that point he withdrew because my dad wasn't going to have surgery anymore, but his internist and the hospice team kept being very open with my dad and really supportive of my mother and all of us and always gave us a sense. They're so unhurried. I mean, they might've been hurried. We didn't know that. His internist did house calls. I would sit down in the corner of my dad's bed and talk to him and talk to us. And, and so I was profoundly touched. We all were. In fact, my sister has stayed in touch with the hospice nurse quite a bit and, and I to a lesser extent, but he was the person who I think really pushed me to think I'd like to do this work. I'd like to do what he's doing, um, but I'm not a nurse. So I didn't want to go back into a fellowship, another fellowship at, at that age in, in palliative medicine. So I started just talking to people in Toronto about how else could I do this? You know, could I offer, I would call it like psycho-spiritual support and started meeting with chaplains. And I assumed that you had to be, have a master's in divinity or be a, a religious person to be a chaplain. And I, I came to a a palliative care conference at University of Rochester. And 
was about spiritual care actually. And I didn't know anybody, I didn't know a soul there, but I saw who the chaplains were. And when they sat down for lunch, I asked if I could join them and found out that to take the chaplaincy residency, it's strong. You don't have to be clergy. You can come from being a mental health counselor. So I was like, okay. And I applied and came in. And of course, my things were changing in my personal life too. I moved to Rochester. I'd been commu- having in a long distance community relationship for 10 years and was getting a bit old. And, and so my partner lives here. And then it was like, I really want to do this work. Things were changing at the clinic where I was working. And, and I also was starting to do more family visits as a psychiatrist and helping people facilitate conversations when I was supporting children who had a dying family member helping the parents talk to the children about the fact that they were dying. And I really liked doing that work. And so I thought that's really what I want to focus on. And as a chaplain, I can focus on that and not worry about medication and all that other stuff. So the last six years of my career in Toronto, I did, I had a small side private practice, just seeing kids with mental health issues who had a dying family member or who had had a family member die. And so that was my specialty. And I had an informal liaison with the Children's Grief Center in Toronto, and they referred me. I was their community psychiatrist who was really interested in helping kids who had mental health issues and a dying family member. So that became the focus of my work. And I also volunteered at a children's grief camp, which was very formative, too. um, Every summer, we went with 70 kids on a bus to a lakeside camp, and I just loved a different way of being with people, and so decided... I was an age where retirement was reasonable to think about. And so I hung up my MD and moved to Rochester and took the chaplaincy residency. That's interesting that I hear you say that you were happy to get rid of the medication and some of these other aspects of being a physician and really boil it down to what you had enjoyed all along. Yes. In fact, so this is, this is really about me. It's not, I'm not, I don't think I'm typical. So I really focused on being a therapist. I did prescribe medication. It was, and I was knowledgeable about it. I mean, I took it responsibly and because I also was connected to the University of Toronto. I mean, it wasn't like I minimized the importance of it and I saw how helpful it was, but it was probably my least favorite part. You know, I'd always have sort of one foot in and one foot out about doing medication with children and I used it all the time. So I, I did it and I, and I did it thoughtfully and I, you know, consulted with a lot of colleagues about challenging situations since I wasn't a psychopharmacologist. So I was happy to give that up. And when I became a chaplain, I sort of felt like, oh, this is where I belonged all along. Mm. <laughs> and I became a chaplain when I was 66, 65 years old. And it took a long time to get there. But I feel like, oh, now I'm home. But maybe I needed all those other years. I mean, I loved what I did. It really was rich. And I loved teaching and just feels like maybe at this point in my life, this is where I feel at home. It's very beautiful, that sense of coming home to finding a place where you belong. What do you think is it about either being a chaplain or being a member of that type of community that makes you feel like you belong? I think, again, it's that interest, it's that thread throughout my life of just being really interested in people's stories. I was very influenced by Robert Coles. I don't know if you know, Robert Coles is, he was a child psychiatrist at Harvard, and he wrote many books about, he wrote The Spiritual Lives of Children. He wrote But one book that really influenced me was called The Call of Stories. And he wrote about what drew him. And he he went and interviewed people all over the United States and then wrote these books about them and definitely came with a psychiatric, humanistic view. But he wasn't diagnosing people. He was really curious about 
what made people resilient, how people coped, what people's spiritual beliefs meant to them and what they were. I highly recommend reading The Call of Stories. And that's what drew him into medicine and drew him into psychiatry. And I think I always felt like, yeah, that's it was Call of Stories. So now I just have the stories to deal with. And I also really, at this point in my life, I'm enjoying being with people who are asking questions. Um, and maybe because I'm closer to facing the end of my life as well. And so those questions are more in my mind. But you know, what's what's really helped people get through rough spots and what's given their life a sense of meaning. And sometimes they look back and they say, oh, I don't really feel like my life had any purpose. And so we sit down and say, tell me about this. And, tell, and it's very, there's always, you know, things people have done that have touched other people or, I mean, really always. And so I love helping people think about what that might be for in their lives. And, and I like talking with their children about what's your father's, your grandfather, your grandmother's, your mother's emotional legacy to you. Like what, what inheritance about their character and their, what was important to them in their lives will you carry forth in your life and having them both be present for that, if possible. Sometimes it's only the family member who's able to have be part of the conversation. And I'm still learning. Like I, I visit people who are sharing books with me that are spiritual books. Um, I, I had a, a patient when I was a resident at Strong who very moving, was a Native American, not entirely Native American, but Native American person who was a, a healer and was a person who wanted traditions of his people incorporated into his care at the hospital. He never left the hospital. And it was really important for him to have his body anointed in a certain way. And when he was the last days of his life, he really wanted that sort of support. So through the chaplaincy office at Strong, Robin Franklin, who's the head of the chaplaincy, said, oh, there's a doctor who I know who also does Native American rituals. And let me call and see where she is or she knows where you could get some of these supplies. Turned out she was in town. She was just about to get in the car to drive back to her home in the south, southern. She came to the hospital and she brought her drum with her. And she drummed him into a trance where he could do what he needed to do. And we found the supplies. I went to a store called Epiphanies in Irondequoit that sells her sweet grass and sage and sacred tobacco. And so I feel like I'm always still learning from people. And people are remarkably, and of course, these are people who've agreed to see a chaplain. Not everybody agrees. The people who really want to share their traditions and share their questions. And my job is really to listen and to not bring any of my own beliefs, but to support people with what their beliefs are. But it's the stories and the questions and to be with people who are still wondering, like, what's next? And why is this happening to me? Or how can I be sure my family will be okay? And so I'm, I'm really drawn to those kinds of questions. So yeah, that's what makes me feel at home. Do you have any particular religious or spiritual background? Well, I guess I do. So I was... I was raised in a Presbyterian church and it was a church that had a lot of community involvement and social activism. I grew up in the sixties and, you know, there were riots in Rochester and my parents were involved in friends of fight. And yeah, so my family was always concerned about social justice issues. And that really was through my church, interestingly. And then when I went to medical school, I started attending Quaker meeting because I was more interested in something that wasn't so doctrinaire, but was more. So then I ended up marrying somebody who's Jewish, but not religious at all. But I really wanted my kids to have 
a spiritual home. And so I thought, well, I'll just look into Judaism myself. And so I started going to classes and reading and I'd always been interested in Judaism. And what I thought was Judaism's willingness to question and wrestle and challenge things with God and the interest in, in education and learning. So I eventually did convert to Judaism. I mean, long after I was married and sort of just on my own. And, and so now I would say, I mean, even then I would say, I'm probably a, I see myself as Jewish, but a humanistic Jewish person who is still really interested in spiritual questions. And I think I fall into the spiritual belief that, that we are all part of something and that there's what's sacred is between us and that there are sacred things and things we don't understand that I'm open to other possibilities, but I definitely believe that there's what's sacred is our relationships with each other and with the earth and, and that we're all on some shared mountain on different paths, um, some going somewhere. So I'm still unsure, like I'm still open to lots of questions. When I was young, the uh, one of the early ministers at our at the Presbyterian church I went to said, God is love at work in the world today. I think whether you use the word God or I, I think my spiritual belief is in, you know, the power of love and what that means, you know, it, working in the world, how we see it, not some remote kind of love. And in my job, I really just want, I'm just curious about supporting people and what they believe, because mm. I think on some level, we all share a wish for understanding what's mysterious and sacred in, in our lives. I guess something else that kind of grabbed my attention in what you were saying was how you feel this really openness towards questions, whether it, you know, being attracted to Judaism on some level because of their ability to question and not say, well, it's just this and that's all that it is, or you're looking at other spiritual traditions. Where do you think that tolerance for uncertainty and questioning comes from? As I have my doubts that medical school is a place where they're just like, yeah, just sit with the not knowing about this thing. And that's fine. <laughs> well, of course. So there's, I mean, you have a body of knowledge that you have to learn. And, and, and part of it's a way of thinking that isn't about uncertainty because with people. But I do think it's changing. I think that the emphasis on um, how to communicate with people, how to have difficult conversations. I think the the move to working with actors who can help people experience what it's like and, the, and that there's more conversation about what did you feel when you were telling that person that their child was going to die or what did you, you know, what was your inner process? So I think there is, you know, growing appreciation and tolerance for uncertainty or introspection. One of the th questions you had sent me was about um, how is medicine, training for medicine and training for chaplaincy different? I think training for chaplaincy is very much more introspective. And we're asked every time we have an encounter, not every time, but we were asked to write these very long reflections on what was happening in the interaction with the patient. What do I think they were feeling? What what did it trigger in me? What resonated with me? What experience in my life showed up during that encounter or afterwards that might've helped or might've interfered with how, how present I could be for the patient? What literary and biblical images came up during the encounter? What would I do differently? And you're really asked to, to focus on your own, how you, your use of self. And I think in medical school, that would be like a bonus. I went to medical school a long time ago 
so I think it's changing. I really do. And I think doctors, we should all acknowledge that we live with a huge amount of uncertainty. What is your prognosis? We don't really know. We can take an educated guess and say most people with your condition only have this long and then people live for years or they die much sooner. And so it may not be talked about, but practice of medicine is living with uncertainty. How's this operation going to go? Am I going to be on top of my game today when I'm really worried about my my partner or my children? Or So I think that it's more like we don't talk about it because it's the elephant in the room is that it's a, it's a very... We're, we deal with uncertainty every day in medicine, but if we were in touch with it all the time, it would be, pretty, it might be immobilizing. Um, so we have to sort of, you know, deal with the likelihood of things and we have to turn from the uncertainty and, and move forward. I think that it's, it's there. It's just not talked about as much, but it's, it's there every day with the, you have to have some shield. And I think part of the reason I, I left psychiatry was my shield is a bit porous. And, and I think that you have to have some ability to not let the uncertainty take too large a place inside. <laughs> Leave some space for it, but don't, don't let it get too big. How does that shield or that weight feel as a chaplain now? Well, I don't have to have the shield anymore. I can just sit with it and acknowledge it. And I'm not asked to make recommendations. I might, I might have a suggestion or if somebody's worried about a child, I, I, I still love when I'm asked to help support children. I mean, I love the whole thing, but I, when somebody asks, says that we're worried about our grandchildren, I'm worried about my child. I'm like, you know, I'd be happy to support them and talk to them. And so I do, it's not like I never make a recommendation, but that's not my main goal. My main goal is to walk alongside people. And so mainly to listen and to reflect back in a way that might be helpful. But sometimes I'm just reflecting that I can just sit with the sadness or the anger and I can't fix it. Or, you know, I had a person recently talk to me about her, her sort of existential loneliness in this process. And I, I first went to this thing about, well, I could come every day. I could, it's like, I could, we could start the day out together. And, and I realized, of course, I couldn't do that. And I really, my job isn't to fix it. My job is to acknowledge her loneliness and yeah, and just to sit with it and, and knowing that she can talk about it and somebody un, might understand or might empathize or might ask her what helps her get through her loneliness. And, you know, sometimes I'll say to people, well, I have a fix itself. Do you want, do you want me to, do you want to tap into that? But really that's not what chaplaincy is about. And if, if my chaplain supervisors heard me say that, they would they would um, be calling me. But so I think I've, I don't have to have that shield anymore. I just can sit with it. And I don't have to, the responsibility piece is very hard to surrender. So I do still think about people <laughs> after work. And, but I'm not making medical decisions. I'm not worried about, did I write the right prescription? Did I, is the dose too much? Or, you know, I worry about, oh, when I see them tomorrow, or how might I listen differently? Or, did I really pick up what they were asking me? And so I think about, but those kinds of things, I enjoy thinking about those. And so I feel responsible and I still, or I might worry about a team member and try to support a team member, but they're probably also doing the same for me. Yeah, it's not that I don't still think about people. It's a different responsibility. So, so 
So what what it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like that shield you were talking about was kind of a shield against all of this emotional work that it sounds like you may not have been given enough time or the right tools to really process in the moment and also this kind of different type of responsibility of it sounds like feeling as a physician that you were almost responsible for fixing it. And if you couldn't do that, then something was kind of wrong. Right, right. I think I was given lots of tools. Yeah, I think it's probably just more, I feel like it's constitution because I see it sort of woven in other parts of my life. And I've, I've been able to reflect on it throughout my life. Like, you know, what are my limits and what are my boundaries and what can I do and what how can I support somebody? And, and I think I, I, one tool I used a lot was I had a, a friend who was a child psychiatrist in Toronto, who we consulted with each other a lot. And there are other psychiatrists that, but we would just email each other and say, are you free? Can I just talk to you about this person I'm really worried about? Or, you know, what's your experience with this new medication? And, and so I, I think it's really important to, to know as a medical student and as, as a trainee, and throughout your career that you're really never alone. And that if you're having a question about something, for sure somebody else has had a question. Because I used to always imagine everybody else just knew what to do and and didn't have these doubts, but everybody does. And so then if I started asking or or networking with people at conferences and they'd say, oh yeah, I I feel that all the time. But they always looked really, and I probably looked pretty calm too. And and I I would be calm with my patients. I don't want you to get the wrong idea. So I think talking about it with each other and and leaning on each other and the mindfulness practices were really helpful. I was in a a mindfulness group that met of of medical providers that met at um, one of the university hospitals once a month to sit together and and then just share some of our, but it was, there was a particular sharing or a particular way we supported each other because we were all facing some of the same doubts and stresses and sadnesses. Um, so I don't think that I didn't have the tools. I think it was still hard for me to lose that. I don't know, always feeling like there must be something else and there probably always is something else. And I just I couldn't, that was harder for me to, to leave unanswered. And, and now I'm sort of, I feel like now I'm specializing in questions that can't be answered. So it's, <laughs> and it's okay, it's, it's, it's okay. I'm not, I'm not there to answer questions. I'm there to accompany and to listen, so. Thanks to Marianne for sharing her story with us. Opening and closing music is composed by Amanda Chow. Dr. Eric Larson is my mentor and advisor. Earlier this week, I asked him which was better, chocolate or vanilla ice cream. Then he got really solemn and said, If you have any topics you would like to hear on the podcast, please email lspodcastproject at gmail.com. That's just an L and just an S, no periods. Thanks for listening and helping to build this community of mutual support, trust, and care. Thanks to Dr. Lewis for...